0: Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Leah Backus. Dr. Backus is an Associate Professor in the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Stanford University. She is also the Section Chief of Thoracic Surgery at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System. Dr. Backus is the Director-at-Large on the STS Board of Directors and she's an accomplished health services researcher. In our conversation, she talks about growing up in Southern California and attending Stanford and USC. We discuss how we almost lost her to the specialty of neurosurgery, and she provides insight on the intersection of being an African-American, a woman, and accomplished surgical scientist. Please join us for this wonderful conversation. Well, welcome, Dr. Backus. I really appreciate you coming out and talking with us today and, and allowing our members and the rest of the community to learn more about you.
1: Thanks so much, David. This is really a nice opportunity. Um, I think that it's it's a it's a really nice means of STS filling a need, which is to increase visibility and do what we kind of think outside the box to keep us all connected, especially nowadays.
0: Yeah, you know, how how are you holding up?
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's 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 good to have work, honestly, you know. I mean um when i look at other friends you know who who don't have the opportunity if you will you know to kind of break up some of the monotony by going into work and interacting with people and kind of uh having reminders of normalcy uh, the alternative is hard it's harder so this is good
0: you know in talking how this is affecting everybody uh in our country um, you know, you are not only with your appointment at Stanford, uh, but you're head of this, uh, you're the, the section chief of thoracic surgery at the Palo Alto VA and a very older population of our veterans with challenging health needs. Well, what's been the situation at the VA in this, during this COVID 19 pandemic?
1: Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head because the veteran population, well, I'll preface things by like saying I absolutely love being a VA surgeon. I mean, it is one of the most rewarding parts of what I do. Um, I really think that all VAs need to be populated by providers who truly get it and who feel a vested interest in helping our veterans. It's not really, it shouldn't be a place where you sort of send old surgeons and doctors out to pasture and it shouldn't be a place where you send brand new folks out to go and experiment and sow their oats, you know, it really needs to be a thoughtful placement of people that get it. So I'll get off the soapbox now though, to say that I, you know, um, you're right in that they are a very unique population. Um, They're incredibly um, grateful. Most of the time, very accommodating. Um, I, I think that they're an easy population to work with when it comes to sort of going through some of the nuances of of how and why procedures uh, and and treatment should be done. Um, The social issues can be a lot bigger of a burden that you're battling a lot of the time. And the VA's done a decent job, I think, about trying to address some of those social issues. Uh, And if you compare and contrast it to, say, for instance, my training at Big LA County Hospital, where you didn't have the infrastructure of the social support services to truly try to help push forward that primary agenda of improving somebody's health, uh, then then it's incredibly more challenging. So, um, but it but it's been really impactful because you know the VA system is so much more than just um, the, that VA hospital, that large flagship VA hospital part of a huge network and a big part of that network are both outpatient clinics, but then also a lot of our nursing homes not just the primary nursing homes, but the nursing homes that were contracted with. And we saw huge outbreaks of sort of both nursing and kind of the other various tiers of rehab, long-term facility places who'd had local outbreaks and all those get funneled into those central large uh, tertiary hospitals. And so that impact was not minor, at least not on us, um, Uh, locally here. Uh, And uh, just like with anything, there's sort of this little bit of an X factor when it comes to this population, because they can, on surface, seem very fit, but beneath the surface have a lot of issues. And so the last thing a lot of them need is to have COVID-19 on top of everything else. So um, so it's been quite impactful, but I think that the VA has done a pretty reasonable job at keeping up with their PPE and kind of shifting resources around, centralizing care, and doing a lot of the things that you would expect and want to have a um, closed healthcare system to do. Yeah,
0: you know, it's, it's fascinating. We're, you know, I think the VA has gotten some negative publicity in the last five years, but if you, if you look at a lot of the VAs, and Palo Alto included, um, many of them are, are, are have close ties to academic medical centers. Uh, and you, you point out the fact that you can, that many of them are staffed with skilled, highly trained surgeons such as yourselves because of those close ties to academic medical centers. I, I assume that's this, the same way at Stanford.
1: Yeah, I mean, they do have this saying in the VA, like you've been to one VA, you've been to one VA. So they do differ significantly in a lot of regards. But one of the one of the common themes as you mentioned is the fact that most of the large centers, I don't know if all, but all that I know of anyway, have some sort of association with a local academic medical center. That association can be highly variable. So you can have some where it's ironclad, like here would be an example. Seattle would be an example as well. Uh, VA West LA, all the three that I've worked in. Um, but then you can have others where the association is a lot more loosely connected. So, um, you know, and a lot of it is, is, is local and institutional politics and
0: whatnot. So you, you mentioned the, the Seattle VA and Palo Alto and LA VA, and it, 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 it displays your West Coast uh, background and, and, <laughs> and upbringing. Uh, you grew up in Los Angeles, um, uh, went to public uh, schools and public high school, uh, went to college at, at Stanford. I, I won't hold that against you being a Cal grad. Many <laughs> uh, of our our audience is from the East Coast and the Midwest, so all, all they know is Red Sox, Yankees, and Michigan and Ohio State. But right. there, there are other uh, hardcore rivalries like Cal, Stanford, and USC for training. So you, you grew up in, in Los Angeles and raised by a single mom who undoubtedly instilled in you a, a sense of hard work and dedication. How has that background shaped you as, as you, who you are today?
1: You know, I, I've considered myself incredibly fortunate, you know, my life could have gone any number of ways, honestly. And, <clears throat> you know, obviously, I mean, I think that there's some amount of resiliency and sort of in, innate um, aptitude and in that sort of thing. But I don't think that that's, that's not the message I want to highlight. The message I want to highlight is the, is the power and influence of your surroundings, your environment, the people around you. I think many times that people make really poor choices because of a perceived lack of uh, other options. Um, and you know, in the public school system, I don't know so much if it's if if, if the case exists currently, but at least at the time when I was growing up, where you and I were growing up, you know, um, there was this whole tracking system, right? And so you got tracked into like an honors track, a gifted track, right? It wasn't honors, it was gifted.
0: Yeah. Um, A gate, right? Gifted and talented. Yeah, the
1: gate program. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there was no, I was never aware of of um, some entry point or or pivotal time or test that I took or anything like that that would either a make me prepare myself to truly maximize that opportunity. Um, or B really kind of provides some objectivity. I don't know what the criteria were, but at some point you get labeled, you're a good kid or you're a bad kid or you're a smart kid or you're a kid that's struggling, you need help or whatever. And so at some point I kind of had these positive labels slapped on me <clears throat> for whatever reason. And that just kind of buoyed me and bolstered me throughout the whole journey. Um, And I think that that's both good and bad, because i look at friends of mine, really good friends who didn't have those labels, who I didn't think were any less intelligent than I was, but nonetheless didn't have those same opportunities. And literally, they're sitting right next to me on the playground, not in my class, but on the playground, right? Um, So I think that um, children and people often rise to the expectations placed in front of them. So, if your expectations are low because you don't see any other opportunity, and no one around you um, opens your eyes to some additional opportunities, um, then you don't. Then you perform to that bar that's been set. And, and I think that that's it's it's both going to bad So, so one of the things that I'm most passionate about is showing people, particularly very young and impressionable people, like pre-med, pre-college, even right. That there's so many opportunities out there. And, you know, I know this, the young generation, the youngest generation gets a little bit of a bad rap right about now, sort of being self-entitled and kind of lazy and this, that, and the other. But there are a ton of good things going on, right? There are a ton of good kids. And it's our job. It's my job having benefited from all the people that went ahead of me and all the things that I've experienced to try to make the road easier for the next people that are traveling behind me. And everything you do is impactful. I mean, you know, um, and you've got to embrace that, not run away from it.
0: You know, you you mentioned sort of tracking in elementary school and sort of what happens in elementary school sets the foundation for success further. I almost seem like um, there's almost like a reset and a restart at every stage, whether you go from elementary to middle or, or junior, junior to high school, college, med school, even, and even residency. Do you see that sort of tracking or labeling or stamping of expectations in sort of the higher graduate medical education level, such as general surgical residency or, or even cardiothoracic fellowship or even junior faculty academia?
1: I think that at some point it morphs into biases. Um, and that you may or may not be privy to whatever the biases are that people have. They may be overt, they may be unconscious, they may be covert, et cetera. But nonetheless, those are the things, in my opinion, that dictate the, the bars and where they are. And some of the bars are visible and a lot of them are invisible. Um, and therein lies the challenge um i mean i've certainly had instances where people have told me that they've been pleasantly surprised but you know right like um uh if i've done a cardiac case in training and like wow you know you did like really like surprisingly so like the expectation should be that i should do well right yeah not that i should not do well because I'm actually not going to be a cardiac surgeon, but I really like thoracic, but simply because I've done all the prerequisites to be here and now I'm standing across the table from you and that should be the expectation. That's just one small example, but to to your point, um, I think that um, those expectations actually wind up uh, morphing into um, people's preconceived notions and biases.
0: As I like to tell my trainees, I know you got straight A's and, college so you should be able to answer this question for me that's, what my <laughs> expectations were. that's right I'm sure but, they all rise to those expectations exactly exactly so you know from my understanding you originally wanted to be a neurosurgeon and so what happened what, what how did you end up in thoracic surgery
1: what happened um good fortune no I'm just kidding
0: <laughs> you, you wised up
1: <laughs> right exactly um what happened was a very unwelcoming reception into my little fledgling foray into the world of neurosurgery um i was told by the chair at the time that their department was only interested in um folks who graduated from ivy league um schools from both undergraduate and medical school. Now, I never felt that my pedigree of Stanford and USC would be a hindrance. But nonetheless, I was being told in no uncertain terms that it was. Um, and I, that was a bit of a slap in the face. Um, because it also, there were, there, you know, that was like the entry that was, that was the opening salvo. That wasn't, you know, like you didn't even try to get to know me. You made no effort to see what else could lie beneath the surface, and it, and it wasn't necessarily about gender or race. It was about my schools, which I had never thought to even question. So, uh, and there were there were more than one instance like that where it was just like, well, why would you want to do that? I don't really think that that's a good fit for you, you know. Um, and so then I came to believe it wasn't a good fit for me.
0: And then somehow cardiothoracic was more welcoming.
1: It was, which probably is a shocker for a lot of people, but it was, I mean, right. Like you're, you're such a creature of your exposure. You're, you are the, you know, um, the product of the things that you've been exposed to and how you've absorbed them and integrated them, et cetera. And at USC, for both medical school and for, then for general surgery, I had such positive um, uh, interactions with uh, all of the surgeons that I felt like this was this was going to be a really good fit for me.
0: Yeah, so, it, it goes to show how just a, a little bit of humanity, so to speak, can go a long ways. Uh, you know, tell me a little bit about sort of those interactions you had at USC that put you on this path.
1: I felt that I was, um, that people actually cared to know who I was. And, you know, some of that has to do with the nature of the beast, right? These are sick patients. They're acutely ill. You as a junior person spent a ton of time in the ICU all day, every day, late at night. There were no hours restrictions back then. And so what do you do when you're waiting on the x-ray or that next blood gas to come back? You know, you are sitting there at the nurse's station eating a, your, you know, umpteenth graham cracker and apple juice. <laughs> I <laughs> you
0: know. like the, the ginger ale and cranberries. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. like you're shooting the breeze and talking about life and what you might want to do and how this can factor into your life later. And I never had a negative connotation like, hmm, why is this uh, chief resident or even attending here at two in the morning with me? which I could imagine many people would think that, like, that sucks. I don't want to be here in the hospital at 2 o'clock in the morning. So it could have had the opposite effect. But if it did, then it's not right for you, right? So um, all those interactions were really important to solidify my interest. You
0: know, you you talked about some of those interactions, and I imagine uh, at USC, you know, you had Von Starns around to guide you. I, I saw you you publish with the, the Meesters. Um, You know, moving on to your first faculty position at UW with Doug Wood there and advancing to uh, your second faculty position at Stanford with the Joes, you know, Joe Schrager and Joe Wu. You've you've, you've had a lot of mentors and guidance and many of whom did not look like you uh, and did not have uh, your big picture shared experiences yet somehow have been effective. Uh, in your uh, professional development and, and clinical development. Talk to a little bit about the need for sort of cross-cultural mentorship, so to speak, a lack of a better phrase, where does your mentor need to look like you in order to have a powerful effect on the mentee? Uh,
1: no, absolutely not, right? And the reality is they, they can't for the most part, you know? So if that's really... Um, the, the point of entry, then we're never going to be anywhere close to getting equitable representation, right? That'll just take lifetimes for that to happen. So the reality is they can't, but I think that, so that's a sobering reality, but the, but the positive reality is that they don't have to, um, because all you have to do is have somebody who truly gets you and has an interest in you. And that's, that's, you know, that's difficult. I mean, a lot of people, you know, yourself, anyone who's in in these positions are are going to be inundated by mentorship requests, little requests, big requests, etc. And you never know exactly what's truly being asked of you, which is why I think a lot of the, um, um, Effort, if you will, rest on that mentee to craft that relationship and really clearly define what their goals are for this relationship. Um, but, you know, you can't close yourself off. Like I said, I feel like that's a central part of both my own wellness, if you will, but a central part of what I, what I feel compelled to do is to help be that mentor uh, and utilize my position of influence for good. Um, so they don't have to look like you. They just have to get you. They just have to get it and they've got to get you. Um, and that's just that goodness of fit that takes a whole lot of trial and error. I haven't had a lot of error, I have to say. It's been mostly all positive um, because it's it's been mutual.
0: Yeah, I think that's key is sort of, it's not that complicated, right? You know, what, what, what everyone wants to do, everyone wants to succeed, achieve their goals. Uh, and then they all have, everyone has a a, a unique personality. And so whether you're at the gym or golf course or in the hospital and academia, you just have to get people and understand what their motivations are and and help them with those motivations.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think it takes a lot of introspection, right? Like we're not, we don't take enough time to carve out quiet space to just really be self-reflective and just think like, I mean, some people exercise a lot, and like if they're running, that's their thinking time, or in their commute, that's their thinking time, or whatever. But I think many of us, myself included, suffer from uh, not carving out enough time to do that thinking piece and be reflective. But if you do so, then you figure out what makes you tick. You know, what do you need to be successful? I need to feel that. Um, there's somebody who gives a crap about me <laughs> in this space. That's me. Somebody else may not need that. Somebody no. else may be completely self-sufficient and not need that. And they just need to know, Hey, what are the hurdles I need to jump through? And how can I do it kind of thing? But I myself need that little extra personal connection piece. Um, and so the, that's what I look for in my mentor circle are people who I feel do have that, um, level of engagement. You know, you talk
0: about sort of self-reflection and, and sort of uh, inner understanding. You know, I would think that you have a complex time in, in our today's sort of self-awareness uh, in academia and academic medicine. You know, what I've noticed when we have these discussions about race or diversity, we talk about women in medicine and we talk about people of color in medicine as if those things are mutually exclusive. And we don't necessarily talk about women of color in medicine or black women in medicine in particular. And and I see when you look at organizations like Associated Women Surgeons, they not have had a woman of color, let alone a black woman president in their 30 years of history. Uh, Women in thoracic surgery have been better and they've had two women of color in over 30 years, uh, one of whom is black uh, in Rosalind Scott. Do you talk a little bit more about that, sort of the the challenges of being a black woman in cardiothoracic surgery? Uh, Have you thought about those issues and, uh, and how do you address those issues?
1: I don't think about them that often because if you did, it would be kind of crippling, right? So it can't be like a pervasive everyday, this is stuff I'm thinking about thing. You can't get blindsided. I have been blindsided uh, when I wasn't thinking about it. And I, you know, I mean, you don't get to this level without having a good amount of resiliency and sort of thickness of skin and that sort of thing. No one goes into surgery with who's like incredibly sensitive, if you will, right? So, so I don't really have that going on for me. But I have been blindsided, and when you're blindsided and you catch something that was unexpected, that really does hurt. That stings. And, and I'm still learning how to deal with that, you know, when those episodes arise. they're not frequent, if you will, but they're notable when they do happen. And you got to then regroup, lick your wounds, and figure out how is it that you can either just heal yourself and that's it. go no further than that, or use it as an education piece and that's harder. you know it's much easier to just lick your wounds and pick yourself up yourself up and move forward. It's a, it's a lot harder to say, hey, do I need to give this person some feedback or these people, this group, would have some additional feedback and make myself vulnerable one, once again in doing so? And I, I pick and choose when to do that, right? Because you can't do that at every instance because otherwise it's a little too much for the system, at least in my book, because um, you do have to have a, a good amount of self-preservation that kicks in, that makes sure that you are in it for the long fight and not these... Uh, every small battle.
0: The marathon, as opposed to a <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, you know, and, and top of all that, you, you're being a, s- a skilled clinician, you have NIH funding, you have VA uh, extramural funding that's equivalent to NIH. You wrote a blog, interesting blog post about motherhood uh, with uh, Mara Antonoff. How are you able to be successful in sort of balancing the uh, challenges and responsibilities of motherhood with a successful academic career.
1: Yeah, it's a total moving target. (laughs) I mean, I'm certainly not gonna stand up here and and like spout off some like winning recipe because I don't have it. Um, But it, it is a moving target and I'm always striving for it. And I kind of, I try to attack it in the same way that I've attacked everything else. Try to get more knowledge, try to build your village. Uh, of uh, confidence and whatnot that you can uh, tap into for if, if and when you have issues, if you will. Um, I've one of one of the things that I like to um, put out there for folks, or for you know, all working women, but certainly for women, uh, female surgeons, is having that really good friend that's a stay-at-home mom <laughs> because I can't do everything that she does you know, um, but it's incredibly helpful to have that person to kind of assuage some of your guilt that you may feel on a given day for not being a stay at home mom that does what she can do. Um, because she will, if she's a good friend, validate the things that you do do. Um, but there's also a very practical standpoint of that. She's usually way more clued in as to what's going on in school and what happens and she can help you you know like hey did you realize the kids were supposed to bring such and such to school today or that's tomorrow or i'm like oh hey do you have an extra because no i didn't realize that um so you know it does take a village and obviously it takes an incredibly supportive spouse that's that's it that's it i mean he's he's the first villager right like <laughs> yeah. so um my husband is fantastic and uh, but even beyond that it's not just about having a a supportive husband, because if I, if my kid shows up to school with no lunch, who does the office call? They call me. Yeah. Well, the irony is I don't make the lunches. My husband makes the lunches, but they don't know that. So the point being that if they're going to have to guess, they're going to default to the societal norm, which is moms make lunches kind of thing. But calling me is very useless endeavor. If you actually want the kid to get lunch, like you really should call dad. Um, so maybe that's going to help try to break some societal norms and whatnot, but the point is you can be very happy in your bubble, but then society will then kind of, uh, show its influence and may run counter to the world you're trying to create.
0: And I imagine you, um, you and your, your husband, just like you approach everything else, uh, in life, have a plan, right. And strategize, you know, whether it's, whether it's field trips or school class projects or, or anything like that. So uh, you're able to sort of plan things out and, and figure them out and, and make it happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the only way it's going to happen because there's not a whole lot of room for spontaneity. So, yeah, everything is sort of highly orchestrated uh, in order to make it work. But then I also just in the same way that I pick my battles when it comes to sort of fighting the good fight uh, and and, and gender and racial equity uh, professionally. I also have to pick and choose, not my battles, but pick and choose my victories uh, on the home front because I may not get to go to every recital, right? But if I sit down, now my kids are old enough, right? I can sit down and say, Hey, listen, you've got, you know, three concerts. Chances are I'm not going to be able to make like one of them. Like which are the concerts that are really critical that, it's you know you need me to be there for and and engaging the kid you set the expectations and then hopefully that kind of you know preempts a whole lot of tears or anger or you know um, um, resentment that could build later so
0: yeah. have you done uh, take your kid to work days
1: I have taken my kids to work, but it wasn't, it, I mean, it wasn't like on a, the scheduled, the national, take your kids to work yeah, day yeah, kind of thing, yeah. but yes, they've both been to, been with me to work. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mine is not yet old enough to come into the operating room.
1: Yeah. I don't know what the age is for that. I think of my two kids, my daughter would be the only one that would actually want to come in the operating room. I think my son would be completely grossed out and <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't handle it. <laughs>
0: you have to maybe uh, do a frog first to kind of
1: yes. transition. <laughs> you, know,
0: you you have mentioned uh, that your greatest achievement has been the TSRA Magoon Teaching Award, um, which is, is a very prestigious award, so congratulations on Thank that. Um, why is that your greatest achievement?
1: Because it comes from those who really don't have any vested interest in your success, and so, in my mind, it's kind of the most independent award that I've that I've received, and because it's something that validates a core part of my being, which is trying to be an educator and influencing uh, younger people around me. So it's validating and it's and it's uh, probably the closest thing I'd get to uh, an independent uh, accolade. So, Uh, and it's something I really enjoy doing I don't really think hard about like oh I'm going to go into teaching mode we're going to do this case I'm going to like I don't really think about that stuff and so um, yeah you get your teaching evaluations all you know throughout uh, your academic life if you will but um, do you really know if you're doing a good job (laughs) (laughs) you don't necessarily
0: yeah it's hard to to, uh, you know, obviously there's board scores and, uh, but it's, it's hard to say, you know, are, are, are you making a difference the same way that my teachers made a difference in you, right? Right. Um, uh, but a war like that uh, shows that your trainees are, are thinking about you outside of those uh, education encounters. Absolutely. So you know, you talked about sort of the, the trainees, which are our future. You're a thought leader and and uh, innovator. What do you see as the future of cardiothoracic surgery? Where where is our specialty going?
1: Yeah, that's such a hard question. I always struggle with answering that one because I I think it's it's so multifaceted. Um, I mean, I think that. We're forever trying to reinvent ourselves, we as the surgeons, and uh, maintain our position. Uh, So we're always jockeying for position and trying to maintain it in the space of treating disease X. Uh, But I think that now more than ever, the silos, the walls of the silos are being broken down And you really have to consider yourself as so much more than just that technician that goes in and extracts something or reconfigures someone's plumbing or installs a new stent or whatever that you've got to actually um, think bigger. Uh, and you've got to really hone your inner uh, professional skill set. You know, you don't get to just go run off to the operating room and you're the king of the mountain and your own little fiefdom and that sort of thing. You've got to actually play nicely with others in the sandbox, and not just play nicely, but build amazing sandcastles. You know, like um, so. I think that the the, the bar is. is is raised. I don't honestly know what that's going to look like, but I think that um, the challenge for us is to continue to maintain our seat at the table at minimum and to try to be part of the drivers of the ship as opposed to being totally reactionary and being potentially left off of it uh, completely.
0: It kind of goes back to what you said in the beginning about at the VA uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, thinking of different avenues for our patient's success, whether it's what skilled nursing facility they're going to go to afterwards, uh, physical therapy after your surgery, pain management and long-term pain regimen, cancer survivorship surveillance, it's uh, a, a layers of complexity that are in our specialty, uh, be, whether it's thoracic in that perspective or car, uh, adult cardiac and uh, aortic disease in that perspective that, that lends itself to sort of cognitive granularity.
1: Absolutely. And in doing so, I think that we're going to be able to better take care of people. That's the end game, right, is to provide better care. Uh, and I, I feel like we've maximized the care we're able to give in this very siloed model of healthcare. And so the challenge is to break down the walls, look at the whole continuum of care of an individual patient and figure out the ways in which we can work collaboratively to improve it because we've done it individually. And now it's all about collaboration.
0: Well, Leah, you haven't, you haven't maximized your success. So I, <laughs> uh, I see a, a lot of exponential growth there. And I really want to congratulate you and all that you've done and, and thank you for all that you do for our, our specialty and the STS. Thank you very much for talking with us today on Same Surgeon, Different Light, and be well for you and your family and your team there at, at Stanford in the Palo Alto VA.
1: Well, thanks so much, David. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's an honor and a privilege, and I, I can't wait to see the rest of the series as it comes out.
0: This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, Trainees and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.